are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight I'll ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job, and we'll be looking together at chapter 13. The book of Job, chapter 13, and you'll find this on page 425 of the Pew Bible. Job's response actually covers three chapters, but we'll focus on the heart of it in chapter 13 tonight. Job chapter 13. Hear the word of God. Behold, my eye has seen all this, my ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God, and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out, or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence and I'll speak and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will condemn me, contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Only grant me two things. Then I'll hide not myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I'll answer. Or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Well, we are considering here Job's response to the speech of ill-mannered Zophar. You remember how he pontificated about Job's guilt without feeling, consideration, or pity. He thinks that if one suffers, it's an indication of God's disfavor. It's the divine judgment upon sin. Job is suffering badly, so his, son, his sin must be grievous, and his suffering is just. And as we noted before, Zophar has some orthodox views about God. Don't be surprised at this, because someone may know the truth and still twist it. The devil himself is probably 
more orthodox than anyone in this room. He knows God and he knows Jesus Christ and he knows the truth about man. It says in Mark 3 that whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. That's orthodox. But the devil hates God and he despises Jesus and he twists everything to suit his purpose. That's the problem. And he does it to his own destruction because hell fire is prepared for the devil. So here we find Zophar affirming the Lord's incomprehensibility and his omnipresence and his justice. But the problem lies with applying the truth of God to the circumstances of man. He was either a materialist, thinking there's nothing but this world, or he was a rationalist, putting reason as the judge of all things. He left no room for the sovereignty of God and the mystery of his ways. We've seen that. And it never enters Zophar's mind that suffering might be the result of something other than punishment for sin. He has no patience with Job's questions or complaints or murmurings. And his faulty logic leads him to the same conclusion that it led his friends Eliphaz and Bildad. Job is suffering. He must be guilty. Job is suffering badly. He sinned badly. That's his logic. But God himself says that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. Yes, God is a righteous judge who will by no means clear the guilty. But he is also a merciful God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. This third friend named Zophar understood the law, but I think he failed to grasp the gospel. His advice to Job was simply to repent so he could experience restoration. Do some heart work, Job. Go to God with your hands stretched out in prayer. Follow my steps and the blessing of the Lord will follow. But as we know, Job was not suffering because of unrepentant sin. His afflictions were the result of something infinitely beyond him. And God is sovereign and he does whatever he pleases. And he's also perfectly good. And we can trust him to do that which is in the best interest of his children. So tonight we consider Job's response to this unsympathetic speech of Zophar. And we read the middle portion of Job's speech that spans those three chapters. In chapter 12, he had refuted Zophar's insolent and childish accusations. These friends are no wiser than he is. He's not inferior to them. It's easy to criticize a sufferer, he says, when your life is free from affliction. And you can hear the pain in his voice as he admits in chapter 12 to being a laughingstock. He goes on to acknowledge God's infinite wisdom and supreme power. And he's well aware of God's greatness. Zophar has nothing to teach Job. God is the great creator. He sustains the life of every living thing without exception. And so in chapter 13, he wants to argue his case, not with Zophar, but with God. His friends are worthless physicians. They speak falsely for God, verse 7. And don't you hear in, hear in his heartfelt complaint this deep sense of betrayal? You're supposed to be my friends. True friendship involves speaking the truth, but doing so, remember, 
in love. The three so-called comforters have expressed anything but love toward Job. Their maxims, he claims, are proverbs of ashes and defenses of clay, and he would plead his case with the Almighty, regardless of the consequences, if only he could gain his ear. And then he declares one of the most well-known quotations from the book of Job. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. And this is perhaps one of the highest expressions of faith to be found in the Holy Scriptures. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job is willing to trust in the Lord, even if God puts him to death. So we find here an expression of trust in God's sovereign providence. We hear that phrase so often, but do we believe in it? Job didn't have Romans 8.28 in those days, but he believed it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And if that is true, then whatever befalls the believer is for his good. There is no such thing as tragedy or misfortune in the life of a Christian, period. No such thing. Everything that happens without exception, we're told, serves his eternal salvation. And this is what we quote, right? He so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. And therefore, it might be said that whatever comes in your life and mine is a blessing. Be it hard or easy, be it heavy or light, be it public or private, be it great or small, doesn't matter. This is what Job was saying. God might slay me. He might take my life tonight. And if he does, it's good. I'll trust him. And this is precisely what every single martyr has said since the beginning of time. With the psalmist, they can confess, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I want to be able to say that. My prayer is that he'll help me do it. Knowing my own weaknesses, I'm going to have to be strengthened by grace to say that. But you see, God had brought Job to the point of being able to affirm that very thing. And that kind of maturity comes through experience sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to hope in him no matter what, even in the face of death. And let's face it, at the moment that Job said that, he was this close to the grave. But he knew that even in his death, he would serve, it would serve his eternal welfare. Now, of course, the flip side, for the unbeliever, nothing at all can be a blessing. Nothing works together for his good. Everything serves as a curse. He's born, he grows, he gets married, he has children, he finds a job, he enjoys his wealth. All it does is aggravate his guilt. His earthly pains and his afflictions are simply foretastes of the punishments to come. And there's no middle ground. 
we find in this life there is either blessing or curse. There is either eternal heartbreak or everlasting joy. That's it. And Job knew this. And as a believer, he expected all things to work together for good. And of course, in the midst of his earthly suffering, that truth might be a little bit obscured. We can understand because bitter tears have a tendency to blur the vision. His confusion and his complaints prove as much, but his hope was not quenched. The fact is, Job realized that for the believer, even death itself is a reconciled friend. And if his next breath is his last, his hope is heaven. So his complaint throughout this book is not so much against the physicality of suffering, although that was hard. His grievance was the apparent inconsistency of providence with God's promise. The Lord had said Job was a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And as a sincere believer, Job looked for God's favor and forgiveness. He held on to the promise that God was going to be his refuge and his strength and his fortress. He didn't expect a pain-free life, but this was extraordinary. Indeed, from the extent and the severity of Job's suffering, God seemed to be an enemy. Up until now, he had put his trust in a God that he thought was good. His fear was that the Lord would turn out to be, in fact, a monster. Will you frighten a driven leaf? Will you pursue dry chaff? In chapter 14, he concludes his speech by lamenting our human frailty. He says, I quote, man who is born of a woman is a few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. What an existence. Life is short and it's severe. We live under the curse. Man is born, he lives for a few years, and he dies. And he's only briefly on the stage of history. So like the writer of Ecclesiastes The sinner's earthly life seems like a tragedy and his days are determined. Even if a tree dies and is cut down, he has the chance of sprouting again. But as Job says in verse 10 of chapter 14, a man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and where is he? But I don't want us to miss the remarkable element of evangelical hope in chapter 14. In that chapter, if you were to look at verse 14, you would find him looking to the resurrection. He says this, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. Do we not see from this that Job is clinging to the hope of the resurrection? In the midst of all of his suffering, this is the truth that sustained his faith. He's looking ahead, Job, thousands of years before Christ, he's looking ahead to his renewal, and he's anticipating a resurrected life. At the moment, his body was horribly disfigured by oozing boils. His friends didn't even recognize him. 
He had no strength. He lacked sleep. He was physically racked with pain. And on top of that, he's suffering emotionally from an untimely death of his 10 children. And what's more, he's spiritually afflicted by the apparent disfavor of God. Apparent disfavor. And he doesn't agree with his three friends, but he's confused by providence. God appears to be angry with me. Why? What have I done to provoke his anger? But you see, there is a flicker of hope for the future. I'll wait till my renewal should come. Job's case, as desperate as it seemed, was not hopeless, and it was not without comfort. He had what theologians call this eschatological hope that could not be extinguished by pain. The spirit-filled church will never give up on her love for the bridegroom. Song of Solomon 8.6 says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. A love that cannot be extinguished. If his three friends could not comfort him, then Job would try to comfort himself. And oftentimes, that's what you and I are called to do when life gets hard and friends get few. We speak truth to our own soul. We remind ourselves of the promise. This is what the psalmist did as he reasoned with himself about the promise. When God makes a promise, he'll keep it. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I shall again praise him, my salvation And my God, you see, the circumstances suggested that the Lord was indifferent and uncaring. How many times have you felt like that? The psalmist was tempted to despair. He was confused. He's in turmoil. He's not at peace. But the word told him that God is faithful. He picked up his Bible and said, God is faithful. And it revealed to him divine mercy and grace. And therefore, it made perfect sense for him to trust the Lord in the midst of hardship. And that's what Job was doing. In the midst of this severe affliction, he still trusted. He believed that God is faithful in fulfilling his promise to the believer. And you can take him at his word. Because God never lies. He'll always keep his word. Our assurance is not based on feeling and emotion. Our assurance of salvation is based on the truth of God's word. Now, I know that some will accuse me of rationalism, but that's not what this is about. There's a big difference between rationalism and being rational. The one is a soul-damning error. The other is a God-honoring choice. Because you see, God made us as rational beings. We're reasoning creatures. We draw conclusions. And that's because he's a rational God. He's perfectly reasonable. So he deals with us just as he made us. Come, let us reason together, he says. And this is a very important distinction to make, especially in our day. Because the rationalist is one who believes that truth comes from reason. Whereas the rational believer 
believes that truth comes through reason. The rationalist considers his reason as the ultimate judge of reality. The rational believer sees his reason simply as an instrument to understand reality. And this is how God made us. And that's why sin is entirely irrational, because it opposes God. But of course, the goal of sound reasoning is for truth to take root in the heart. That's the only way for human reason to be of any real benefit to us. It's got to grip the heart. If truth and revelation get stuck in the head and goes no farther, we'll perish. This was the problem with the Pharisees. Truth went no farther than the head. This people honors me with their lips. Their truth was lodged in their minds, but the truth never made the journey from cognition to devotion. Their hearts, he says, were far from me. They had no love for him. And this is my point, that God speaks to us and his speech comes to us through the mind. We read scripture. We hear a sermon. We listen to the teaching. It's revealed truth. And for it to be effectual for our salvation, the Spirit's power is needed, as we said this morning. He alone can open the heart in order for us to receive the things of Christ. This is what happened when Paul spoke to that little group of ladies praying by the river. Lydia was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So he's presenting the gospel to her mind, and the Spirit is opening her heart. You see, a person can understand with the mind without embracing the truth with the heart. He can read the text. He can apprehend its meaning, their sentences. He can sense its implications. The Pharisees realized he was talking about them. The problem is not mental. The problem is moral. By nature, the unbeliever hates the gospel, hates the light, doesn't want to be exposed. He loves his sin. He doesn't want to repent. He tries to avoid the truth. He will not come to Christ, even though his conscience speaks to him about judgment. As wisdom in Proverbs 8, the Lord Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus said this, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. That's a sobering description of how we are by nature. We love death. In his word, God addresses the mind through which the truth is going to enter the heart. But for it to enter the heart, the spirit has to exert his regenerating power. The problem with modern evangelicals is an overemphasis upon experience. We've talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating. The problem with modern evangelicalism is its overemphasis upon experience. By and large, evangelicalism in our day underutilizes the mind and depends upon the senses. Worship leaders, just for example, I'm not trying to pick on them, but this is an illustration. Worship leaders strive to move the emotions and to excite the feelings. 
And emotions are good. God made us with emotions. But the focus is on man's mood rather than God's glory. For many, a good worship service is all about the ambiance and enthusiasm. Not long ago, I met up with a man who had left our church years and years ago for another. He had soured on Reformed theology and worship, and so I saw him. I hadn't seen him in a long time, and I asked him how he was doing. And this is what he said in part. He said, Scott, I've learned that it's not about theology, but about a relationship. And his not-so-subtle critique of our attention to doctrine was depressing to me because he thinks we overemphasize the truth to the exclusion of true communion with Christ. But it's not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and. It's communion through truth. Anything based on emotion is inevitably going to ebb and flow. It goes up and down. As humans, we have to take into account the reality of emotional inflation. You ever hear that phrase? Emotional inflation. You know what inflation is. It's an increase in price with a corresponding drop in the value of money. That's inflation. Emotional inflation. It's an increase in desire corresponding with a drop of value in experience. So what happens Old excitements become ordinary. New excitements have to be sought. It becomes this relentless pursuit of new and greater thrills to keep up with our desire. And consequently, assurance eludes us. Excitement is a fickle foundation. If our faith is based upon truth, upon doctrine, sound doctrine, we grow in strength and contentment. I guarantee you, Job didn't feel very well, but he had truth. Perfect peace is promised to those whose minds are stayed upon Christ. An overemphasis upon experience will shift the focus to the worshiper. If truth is central, then Christ is central because he is the way, the truth, and the life. By the truth, we are set free, John 8. In the truth, we are sanctified, John 17. And the Spirit works with God's word in delivering us and making us more holy. And that word is addressed to the heart through the mind. We are rational believers. So in the midst of his affliction, Job was reasoning with himself about God's truth. I don't feel very good. Nothing seems to make sense. It's all confusing. But I know what the word teaches. He knew himself to be a sinner, but he believed himself to be a saint. And by faith in the coming Messiah, he had the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And so with Paul, I believe that Job can sincerely say, though our outer self is wasting away, Literally, in his case, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know, sometimes God leads us into unfamiliar and very difficult situations for reasons known only to him. For some, that may mean affliction or hardship. It might mean disappointment or even death. 
But Paul says God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. May the example of Job and the truth that he embraced be a good illustration for us this evening in godly living. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in the life of this ancient believer, you have taught us the importance of perseverance, of knowing the truth, believing it, and embracing it in the heart. And we ask that you'll help us to do that very thing, because we all know our weaknesses. And if left to ourselves, we would never say something like this. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and the promise that he's always with us. So we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.